20th century Welsh author and minister Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, What accounts for most of our failures in Christian living is our failure to realize what we are. It is our failure to realize what God has done to us, what has happened to us. As the body of Christ, the church, we are the only entity on earth who actually has the power to affect the changes and provide the answers for what is truly wrong with this world today. Yet all too often the church, I think particularly in the Western world, inexplicably fails to recognize and accept what God has actually done to us as believers and followers of Christ, as Christians, the, the equipping that he's done to us for that very work. It's as if we don't understand sometimes what his word clearly says about who we are and more importantly, what we're capable of, right? We, we say we believe what his word says about us, but then why don't we always live like it? Why, why don't we always embrace what he's actually done to us that makes us uniquely equipped to offer healing to this broken world? It's as if at times we don't recognize whose image it is that we bear as believers and followers of Christ. And as a result, we inevitably, we neglect the power available to us, the power that is in fact within us to effect real change. And so instead, uh, in lieu of relying on the power of God within us to effect change in the world, instead we rely on the hope that by imposing our conservative moral values on the systems of this world, we will then be able, through those systems, to bring about the changes that are needed in this world. And so we end up focusing on things like government and politics, as Sheila said, and uh, social policies and education and the use of technology and media, even entertainment, to try and influence the moral compass of our culture, which is exactly, by the way, what religious people have been doing as long as there's been religion. And, and listen, it, it's not that Christians shouldn't be involved in government and politics and social policies and education and technology and media and entertainment. Of course, we should be involved in all of that. As long as we understand that none of that can ultimately provide the answer for what is actually wrong with the world. Right, because when you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven, what you find is that when people needed healing, God healed them through the church, right? Not through government or, or politics or any, any other way. He healed people through the church. When families needed provision for their daily needs, God provided for them through the church. Right? When the disenfranchised needed to be cared for, God cared for them through the church. Okay, when leaders needed guidance, God gave them guidance through the church. When lost people needed to be found, God rescued them through the church. When the broken needed mending, God repaired them through the church. When the lonely needed relationship, God embraced them through the church. When the unlovable needed friendship, God loved them through the church. When the confused needed answers, God answered them through the church. And when the world needed a savior, God revealed him and continues to reveal him through the local church you understand every single thing this world is in desperate need of today God is offering through the church that's why 
the consequence of 12 men of average upbringing and experience planting the church by spreading the message of the gospel like wildfire across the ancient world. It's why that resulted in a third of the world's entire population professing faith in Christ today, 2,000 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Because as maligned and persecuted as the early church was, they understood and they embraced who they were and what God had done to them, what he'd put inside of them. And as a result, the culture around them and indeed the world was forever changed by the Spirit of God working through the church. Yet you'll notice when you read it, they weren't running the government. They didn't have control of a political party. They weren't in charge of the educational system of the day, and they were not widely accepted in popular culture. They simply understood their identity in Christ and exactly what he had put inside of them. And as a result, the church became an unstoppable force in this world. And yet today, it seems like when, we, when, when people look to the church for answers and for help and for guidance and healing and rescue and for power, I mean, real power, what they're increasingly finding is a church that is looking to the systems of this world to provide all of that for them, to governments and social movements and popular culture. And then we wonder why the church is bleeding membership today. Well, listen, it's because if all we are offering the world is a more morally conservative version of what they already have, well, why bother? No, what, what people are looking for today is what they've always been looking for. Because whether you realize it or not, although human culture constantly changes, listen, human nature never changes. What people needed 2,000 years ago is exactly what people need today. And it's something that cannot be found in this world outside of the local church. And just to be clear, when I say the church, I'm referring to you. Right? Because if you are indeed a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then you have something that cannot be found anywhere else. But if you don't recognize, let alone exercise, the power that God has put inside of you, then how will we, the church, how will we ever affect real change, lasting change, eternal change in people's lives in this world? Paul Washer said, the more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you're going to see the power of God. So you're getting this, right? What this world is desperately in need of and searching for today can only be found in you. It's Jesus, the Spirit of Christ that abides inside of you. And I'm telling you, if we spent half of the energy and effort as we spend on politics and social movements and cultural issues, if we spent half of that energy and effort on simply telling people about Jesus Christ and then actually showing them what he's done in our lives, well, then we wouldn't have to try and influence governments and political parties and cultural movements because the church would be such an unstoppable force in this world that it would once again spread like wildfire regardless of its relationship to governments and political parties and cultural movements. So look, we are far better off as the people of God. We are far better off if we have to choose. And of course we don't. But if we have to choose, we are far better off being uninformed about politics and cultural issues and current events than we are being uninformed about the gospel and the power it provides within us. Right? 
Why? Because this world doesn't need more politics. It needs more Jesus. This world doesn't need a more woke culture. It needs more Jesus. This world doesn't need more religion either. It needs more Jesus. And yet the only place, the only place that he can be found in this world is in the church, in you and in me. Okay, the spirit of Christ and his word, that is the power within you. And it is the only power in this world that can truly ever change the world. But you have to recognize and you have to exercise that power if you want things to actually change in the world around you, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing about in his letter to Titus and indeed the rest of the Christians in the churches on the island of Crete, churches that Paul had planted probably on a fourth missionary journey, but were now beginning to lose their way as the leaders of those churches are becoming more interested in religious and cultural power than they were in the power of God. And the result of which was not only false teaching, but false Christian living. Uh, they were actually leading people away from Christ by their words and their actions, all in the name of Christianity. And it was a mess as the church began to reflect the culture around it more than Christ within it. And so Paul is instructing Titus to clean up the mess, to put things into order, to effect real change in the churches in Crete by doing precisely what the religious people there had failed to do by not recognizing or exercising the power of God that was available to them, that he had put in them. And listen, uh, the way that Paul instructs Titus to do that is so unbelievably simple. It's so basic, it's such a simple solution for such a serious problem. It almost seems inadequate, at least I think in the way that we tend to think about these kinds of issues in the church today. But Paul was crystal clear, as we'll see, that to effect real change in the world, which always starts with the church, the prescription is the same today as it was then. So let's read it together. It's Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1. And uh, we'll spend the next three weeks working through this letter. Today we'll work through chapter 1. So Titus chapter 1, we'll start by reading the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. At this point in Paul's life, at the writing of this letter, which he penned between First and Second Timothy, by the way, Paul had been preaching at this point. He'd been preaching the gospel. He'd been, he'd been living out his calling. He'd been planting churches all over the Mediterranean world for over three decades. Right? He's revered at this point among the apostles, the churches, the church leaders of the day, and his prolific writing has been widely circulated among them. And yet when Paul describes himself as a servant of God, he chooses to use the Greek word doulos, which is literally translated as slave. And not just any kind of slave, but a doulos was known to be a low slave in that culture. In fact, one Greek scholar called doulos the most abject, servile term in use among the Greeks for a slave. It was also the word for a slave by choice 
oddly enough. So Paul, who's planted these churches he's writing to now, describes himself to them by choice as the lowest of low among them. He says, I am a low slave to Christ. And as a low slave, what does Paul say the command of his master is? What is Paul's job? What is the work that his master has assigned to him as a low slave? He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. In other words, for your sake, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, which can also be translated as simply manifested his word. It's also a direct reference, by the way, to the gospel. So he's talking about the gospel. So at the proper time, the gospel was manifested, Paul says, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So again, Paul says, I am a slave to the command of Christ to manifest his gospel through preaching for the sake of the church. And if you think about everything that Paul has done at this point in his life, I mean, after three decades of ministry, uh, you think about just the miracles that Paul has performed, the churches he started, the young disciples he's trained, the letters he's written, the travels he's undertaken, right? The sacrifices that Paul has made. You consider the point of all of that. The great purpose of his entire life and ministry, the very activity that he considers himself to be enslaved for, Paul says, is nothing more than the preaching of the gospel of Christ. That's it. Preaching the gospel, Paul says, is not a part of my purpose in ministry. It is my purpose in ministry is what I am enslaved to Christ for. This is how profoundly important and all-consuming that Paul considers the proclamation of the gospel to be for the sake of the church, for you and for me, and not only the church as it was then, right, but all those who would ever become a part of the church today and in the future. And so to Paul, the preaching of the gospel was not only the single greatest calling of his life, but it was also the single greatest activity responsible for building the kingdom of God because it was the power of God's word in him that affected real change in people's lives, both then and now. He saw it firsthand in his day. Of all the things Paul did, of all of the accomplishments, of all of the miracles, of all the churches planted, of all the people trained, of all the places he went and the things he saw, the most effective thing, Paul says, I ever did to build the kingdom of God, I could ever do, is to preach the gospel of Christ. Keep that in mind as we continue, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Crete is the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean, south of the Aegean Sea. It's southwest of uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
being over 3,000 square miles in size and also because of the fact that it was incorporated into the Roman Empire in 67 BC. This was a very highly populated island. In fact, it was well known for its many cities, which are mentioned um, in quite a few ancient literary works, including the Iliad by Homer. So this is a famous uh, at the time for its size and population. It was also uh, famous for some other less desirable qualities as well, which we'll talk about in a bit. But th the point for now being, there wasn't just a problem here with a few churches on a small Mediterranean island. This was a large-scale, widespread problem throughout the many churches that Paul had planted in the many cities on a densely populated and very large landmass. Okay, so when Paul tells Titus to put what remained into order, to fix what was going on in all these churches, uh, that was no small task. In fact, it would be a massive undertaking to travel to all the cities on the island trying to straighten out the mess that had developed in these fledgling churches. In fact, that phrase, put what remained into order, that Paul uses was actually a medical term that was used to describe a doctor setting a bone, like a crooked limb. So the church is broken, and it's in need of straightening out. It needs mending. So Paul tells Titus to go into every town or every city, meaning every church, and appoint elders or overseers, in other words, pastors, to help with the problem because there's no way Titus or any other man by himself can fix what has gone wrong in all these churches. And notice, interestingly enough, the qualifications that Paul lays out for these church leaders has nothing to do with giftedness. It has nothing to do with being gifted or talented. He, Paul doesn't say to Titus, go find the most talented guys you can. No, he doesn't say, go, go find the guys with seminary degrees or go find the best communicators or go find the most gifted worship leaders or go find the members who give the most money or volunteer the most time or the ones who are the most popular among the people. No. No, Paul isn't looking for great talent. He's looking for godly character. Right? And so he lays out a framework for Titus to follow. And it's not an exhaustive list, by the way, and it's also not a demand for perfection either. It's simply a guideline to help locate people whose chief desire is to follow Christ and to lead others to him and those who have the proof of that evident in their lives, which, by the way, is always evident in a person's life if you're paying attention. Okay, so find the people who are passionate about following Christ, leading others to him, who have these qualifications. So Paul says to Titus, when you find men who fit these criteria, then you're on to something because the task at hand is massive and massively important. So it's critical that you choose leaders who are sold out to find, uh, following Jesus, to leading others to him because the job before you is going to require a small army of people who are committed to nothing less. So listen up, Titus. I've laid out the fact that there's a problem. I've explained in detail who you're going to need to help you fix the problem and how to find them. And then in verse 9, Paul explains exactly how Titus and the new pastors are going to bring all these churches back into order out of the chaos that has, has resulted from an island-wide church culture that has abandoned the true gospel in favor of a version of their own making. This is a massive problem. They are now preaching a version of the gospel that suits them better, that serves their selfish natures better, one that manipulates people instead of transforming them, one that hurts instead of helps, one that leads people ultimately away from Christ rather than leading them toward him. 
It was a mess. Bible scholar Robert Yarbrough once said, the message that pastoral leaders are charged to uphold is not theirs to invent, shape to their own demands, or edit to their preferences. Yet that's exactly what was happening in these churches in Crete, as we'll see. And so, so okay, what is Paul's master design? Right? What's the grand plan, Paul? What's the great solution for this widespread, complex, rampant problem? What does Paul tell Titus and the other pastors to actually do about this massive problem? He says, hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What? Seriously, like that's it. That's your master plan. To go and preach the gospel. Paul doesn't put together a committee. He doesn't start a new program. He doesn't petition the government. He doesn't light up Facebook or send out a flurry of mean tweets. No, he just, he just tells Titus to find some other dudes, like-minded Jesus followers, and then go preach the gospel, and while you're at it, rebuke anyone who tries to stop you. That's the whole plan for all the churches on the entire island. <laughs> just go preach the gospel. That's it. According to Paul, that is how Titus is going to bring order back to the church. By simply preaching the truth and rebuking those who preach any other version of it. When he says hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, it's a little more intense than it sounds. The phrase hold firm is the Greek word uh, entectomai. It, it describes something that you are fiercely attached to. It was the description actually of someone with a fanatical dedication to something. Something uh, they could not let go of if they even tried. And we've already seen in Paul's intro to this letter, that's exactly how he felt about himself and the gospel and his life's calling to preach it. Right? And why? Well, because there's no greater power on this earth than the power of God's word that is working inside of you. And look, the way that power... Uh, the way that power, the power of the word is activated, the way it actually does something in our lives and in the lives of others is when you keep it inside, have a private faith, and don't really tell anyone else how you feel. No, that's not what he said. No, it doesn't work like that. The way the word, the power within us is activated in our lives and in the lives of others is when we faithfully proclaim it Understanding that it will not return void. Okay, there's power in what you speak. In fact, what you speak every day, you understand, is it's either bringing order or chaos into your life and into the lives of others. That's a fact. What you're saying every day to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to the people you work with and live around, what you speak every day is contributing to either order in their lives and circumstances or chaos in their lives and circumstances. That goes for yourself as well. What you speak to yourself either brings order to your life or it brings chaos to your life. The fact is, there is great power in what you speak, both to others and to yourself. Proverbs 18, 20, and 21, Sheila referenced it. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. 
There's great power in the words that you speak. So listen, are you speaking life? Are you speaking encouragement and strength and healing and peace and faith and love and truth into your life and into other people's lives, which promotes, by the way, the God-created order in our lives that we're intended to live in? Or are you speaking death, doubt, discouragement, weakness, confusion, failure, hatred, falsehood into your life and into other people's lives, which promotes chaos and confusion and destruction? By the way, this isn't... uh, This isn't a word of faith, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel I'm talking about. This is Paul's admonishment in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, namely God's word. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, the teaching of the gospel. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Order in your life. This is what Solomon was saying in Proverbs 18 that we just read. And again, he says it in Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. That's the chaos and destruction. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's great power in the words you speak. David says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. His word inside of you will guide you through life. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear peace, order, it's what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. There's no in between. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. There's power in the words that you speak. I could go on and on because the scriptures are clear. As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there's great power. In your words. Listen, one of the things that that people remember, uh, I've learned most about their parents long after their parents are gone, is the things their parents said to them. Good or bad, by the way. Those those words stay with you forever. Fact is, I sit in my office week after week and listen to the brokenness in people's lives because of something that was said to them by a parent or by a spouse or by a son or daughter or friend or an enemy. Okay, like it or not, your words have great power. So choose them wisely. Because whether you realize it or not, you are either speaking order and life into yourself and into others, or you're speaking chaos and destruction into yourself and into others. This is why it's so important to never underestimate the word that he puts inside of you. Because that word has the power to heal. 
to guide, to inform and transform even the hardest of hearts, the most broken and lost among us. His word inside of you has the power to affect real change in this world far more than anything you could ever hope to do politically or socially or culturally. As a Christian, listen, as a Christian, proclaiming and defending the truth is your superpower. It's the power within you. But you have to hold on to it fiercely and defend it with your life. John Calvin said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Let's finish the story for today as Paul gets into the heart of the problem now, verse 10, to the end of the chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Just say what you mean, Paul. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So just to be clear, the source of the problems that are plaguing the churches in Crete are coming from within the church, not outside of it. It's the religious people, the circumcision party, who are stirring up most of the trouble, which, by the way, is always the case. Listen, I've been in this long enough to see that when churches, even today, when churches go under, when a local church goes under, they close their doors for good, it's never because of problems or pressures coming from outside of the church. It's always from problems and pressures that come from within the church. In fact, there's, there's plenty of historical research available. Nancy Piercy's excellent work, if you haven't read it, Total Truth, it's worth your time. It's one example. She shows that the church is always strongest when it's being pressured and persecuted from the outside world. Okay, it's never problems from outside of the church that destroys the church, but problems within the church that weaken and ultimately ruin local churches. And what was it about these religious people that was the problem? Right, in Crete, well, Paul says they're insubordinate. If you read that in the original Greek, it's the word anapotactus. It's an antonym. It's the opposite of the word submit. And, and so what are they refusing to submit to? Paul says the word of God. The word of God, if you read it in the Greek, he's talking about the word of God as taught by Paul and the other apostles. And so instead... He says they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so Paul says they must be silenced, therefore rebuke them sharply. Okay, Paul isn't playing around. He's telling Titus, you have to shut them down. And again, he's not talking about unbelievers outside of the church. He's talking about religious people who profess to be believers inside the church. Paul said they profess to know God. 
but they deny him by their works. In other words, the proof is in the pudding, baby. You can call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, all you want to. But if the evidence of that claim isn't clearly evident in your life, if there hasn't actually been a transformation in your life, then your actions are betraying your words. In other words, what you're doing is contradicting what you're saying. Paul describes this same situation even more candidly in his second letter to Timothy, which he wrote right after this letter to Titus. He said to Timothy, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. He said they'll be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Paul says they will be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, what a list. I mean, it sounds like Paul's describing the worst of the worst in society, the criminals, the addicts, the thieves, the pagans, the worldly people, until you finish reading his description of these same people in the very next verse, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, what? Paul isn't talking about worldly people. He's talking about religious church people. And he wasn't talking about just the religious church people then. No, he opens the whole statement with, in the last days. He's talking about religious people today. Now look, for the Cretans, <laughs> these people living on Crete, living like that, those outside of the church on that island, that was par for the course. Crete was famous at the time. It was known throughout the ancient world, in fact, for its moral decadence, which is why Paul quotes, it was probably quoting the ancient Greek philosopher Epimenides of Crete when he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, well, that's true. <laughs> the ancient historian Polybius wrote that it was almost, I'm quoting, he says, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. The ancient Roman scholar Cicero said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. <laughs> so listen, to anyone who was alive at the time, this behavior among the unbelievers of Crete would have been no surprise at all. But not in the church. Right, where, where people were being taken advantage of instead of being protected, where people were being exploited instead of being nurtured, where entire families were being led away from Christ instead of to Him. You see, the culture of the church in Crete reflected the culture outside of the church in Crete. There was scarcely any difference in how the people inside the church there lived from the people outside of the church. And it was not only ruining their witness to the unsaved outside of the church, but it was also destroying the church itself. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. Okay, generally speaking, people either view God through the eyes of religion 
or through the eyes of Jesus. There really isn't a whole lot of in-between. Even an atheist, if you ever watch someone interview or debate with an atheist, if you ask an atheist what they think about God, they will always answer you by telling you what they think about religion, which actually makes sense because they don't know God. The truth is, Christians should be neither surprised nor offended when unbelievers talk about God in the context of religion instead of talking about him personally because while not being acquainted with God, they're often well acquainted with religion. The problem is religion's never saved anyone. (laughs) Only Jesus can do that. So what validates our claims to the world and to the church about what we say we believe about Jesus, what validates those claims is our actions. It's how we actually live our lives. Proof's in the pudding. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's not that your works save you. It's just that they prove that your salvation is true. They bear out what you say you believe when you live out what you say. The same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You hear me? You can tell people what you believe all day long, but if what you do doesn't match up with what you say, nobody is listening to what you have to say. Nobody cares. There's power in what you do. There's power in what you speak. There's also power in what you do because what you do either points people to Jesus or it points them to someone else. Right? Everything you do ultimately either points people to Christ or it points them to someone else. And there's nothing more powerful than that, for good or for bad. Right? You're either leading people toward him or you're leading people away from him, which is a tremendous amount of power and responsibility that you've been entrusted with. And so when what you do lines up with what you say, your life points people to Jesus as a follower of Christ. But, but when what you do contradicts what you say, then nobody's listening to what you say because all they see is a counterfeit faith, a fake, a fraud. And ultimately, that drives people away from Jesus and his church. You know what that means? It means your actions don't just affect your life. Now, what what you do affects the lives and relationships and marriages and circumstances all around you, including and especially those within the church, within the body of Christ. So look, if, if you want to affect real change in this world, which starts in the church, then make your actions, everything that you do, how you live your life, make it line up with everything that you say you believe. Now, easier said than done, right? I know, firsthand. But listen, when you proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life, and then your actions, what you actually do, lines up with those words, with what you say, 
There's no greater testimony to the church first and then to the rest of the world of the power of God that is at work within you. In fact, it is that very power that affects real change in the world. And you know why it affects real change in the world? Because it not only leads people to Christ, but it overthrows the enemy's purposes against you and the people around you. Sheila already quoted it. Revelation 12, 11 says they have conquered him. Who? The, the enemy. Who's they? It's us. The people of God have conquered the enemy. How? By the blood of the lamb. That's the gospel. And the word of their testimony. Okay, the truth of the gospel, when it is proclaimed and lived out in your life, that is your superpower. That's the power within you that leads people to Christ, that strengthens his church, and that defeats the enemy. There's nothing more powerful in this world than God's word inside of you lived out in front of them. Pastor and author John Piper says Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. And listen, the way that we make known his identity is by proclaiming his words more than we do ours. And then making sure what we do matches what we say. That was Paul's whole message to the church in Crete. He'll spell out in the coming chapters what that looks like. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But Paul's whole message to the church in Crete. Hey, God has put his word inside of you. If you'll proclaim it and live it, all of this mess will be straightened out. That's all you have to do. That was his message to the church in Crete. That's actually Paul's message to the church today because although human culture constantly changes human nature, what? It never changes. So what was plaguing the church then still plagues the church today. Andrew Womack said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. The reason that was true in the church in Crete and the reason it's all too often true in the church today is because we've underestimated the power of God's word within us and the real effect that it has when we proclaim it and live it out in our everyday lives. And so instead, we've learned to rely on other things. Shiny things like technology, things like political and cultural influence media and entertainment, right? We rely on these other things to try and bring about the change that is needed in our world today. And when you do that, listen, this is the whole deal. When you do that, when you focus on and speak out on things like politics and cultural and social issues, more than you focus and speak out on the word of God, then your actions, what you do, isn't lining up with what you say you believe as a Christian. Namely, that the gospel of Christ is truly the only answer for what is wrong with this world. I mean, if you really believed that, you'd put more focus on that than you do on politics and government and media and all the other. But that's what we do. We focus on these other things while we're talking about the gospel and there's an incongruence. It doesn't line up. What we say and what we do doesn't line up. People aren't stupid. 
Some of them are, but I mean, most people aren't. And they look at what we say and they look at what we do and they say, man, I don't know. I'm not sure I buy it. You see how important it is and how powerful it is when what we say and what we do lines up. And listen, even worse than that, when you focus on these other things, you're neglecting the power God has put inside of you, which happens to be the only power on earth that is able to affect real change in this world for the good of man and for the glory of God. So yes, absolutely, 100%, be involved in politics, be involved in social and cultural causes. We should, and that's good. But don't forget where the real power for change comes from and don't underestimate the effect that power can have on this world when it is working through you. When you speak out and live out the word of God in your own life, listen, that is your superpower. And if you'll let it, well, it will change the world. It'll start right here in the church. Let's pray.